Um, right. We right. also do have the Netflix. And listen, I sound like an old person. We've got the Netflix and the Hulu. <laughs> and the Facebook and the Twitter. And the Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gosh, my kids are right. I am cringy. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 89 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitra, and I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Aaron Vay in Whitby, Ontario. Hello there. And we also have Jaime Lopez from Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And somewhere south of the Mason-Dixon line, we have Tammy Coron. Howdy. Howdy. I did that right. <laughs> Alrighty. So, yes, we were just uh, about to talk about how Apple's doomed, having only made $50 million in the last Billion. quarter. Billion. $50 billion. I was wondering about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no, it was $10 billion that they made. I don't have an oh. article in front of me, but they sold 50 million iPhones. I think that's where you're confusing. Oh, right. Yes, yes. Yeah, something like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. So, yes, uh, in their most recent earnings report, Apple reported uh, lower growth, I think is the correct term. Growth is down for the first time in something like eight years uh, or maybe longer. Uh, in the first time in the iPhone era. So... Mm. Uh, this is it. It's over. Uh, everyone's mm-hmm. saying that the party's done. People have packed away the confetti and they, they've gone home. And they're all investing in Facebook now, which is right. doing way better. So uh, you can you can kiss Apple goodbye. Okay. So, yeah, I don't know, like, whatever we're going to do with the rest of our careers, um, we better line up and maybe, maybe learn JavaScript because I hear that's pretty hot. Yeah, well, I thought it was all the uh, developers who didn't get selected for WWDC that were dumping their stock. Oh, no, no. See, WWDC's canceled because, (laughs) (laughs) remember, Apple's dead. That's true. They're doomed. Yeah, they're doomed. Um, Yeah, no. Okay, so let's let's be serious. Let's be serious. Let's be real. If we have to. If we have to. Um, Okay, so the article I've put in the show notes here uh, was actually published the day before the results, and... Uh, it's significant because we knew that Apple would be posting these results. Uh, Apple provided that guidance in the previous quarter, so we knew it was going to happen. And as the quarter ended, uh, it was analysts getting their numbers. It was abundantly clear that this was going to happen. So Jan Dawson um, from Beyond Devices, uh, you'll see the link in the show notes, has posted had posted this blog post the night before, and in, in doing so, explaining what the decline in iPhone sales is all about. And so, um, and then the next day after the results were posted, um, Dawson posted the net that, you know, he's like, turns out that uh, Tim and I were kind of explaining the same thing. Um, so it has some credence <laughs> uh, comparing this blog to the, the uh, analysis that Tim Cook provided on the analyst call himself. Right. So uh, did you guys have a look at this or do you see anything about this? Um, no, I mean, if you can give us the TLDR, just this first time I've seen this, actually. I've got to um, sort of come back to this and explain what happened in the last year. Um, if you look at the growth rates for iPhone uh, since 2012, which is the chart that he's got here, you can see that it's on a steady decline um, hmm. and a predictable one. Uh, so from, you know, triple-digit growth, I think at one point, uh to you know, fifty percent, forty percent, twenty-five, and then declining even more. And this is just from 2012 and every quarter from then. And if you were to plot that line of decline 
it would be a very, uh, very slight decline, even from two years ago. However, <laughs> the iPhone 6 came out last year, uh, sorry, the year before. And when it did that, it satisfied like a whole new group of customers that had mm. sort of been waiting for a larger screen iPhone. And as we know, they had a huge boost from those sales. And so if you look at the numbers that were steadily declining, you can see in 2014 this huge bump for the next five quarters. Um, right. Yep. You know, and that's what this article is kind of pointing out in the chart. Now, if, if Apple had not released an iPhone 6 with a larger screen, then you could plot the same declining growth rate. And what you see in that case is not nearly as alarming as what we're seeing now. Right. Yeah. Yep. That's the point he's trying to make here. I am not an analyst. However, <laughs> um, you can see that uh, this is probably not uh, as as great a deal as it makes as it seems uh, on first blush. So the answers to this are: Does Apple need to find like a new segment of the mobile phone market to sort of tackle? Um, and maybe it has in the iPhone SE, which is going after the sort of lower cost, um, as well as the people who are still interested in a four-inch phone. Or do they continue to ride this decline out and count on the existing pool of customers and stay in their place sort of as a premium phone maker? You know, this is the engine of Apple's cash growth, really, right? Like Mm -hmm. this business hemorrhages cash, right? As you know, Um, you know, despite Apple's quote unquote poor performance this last quarter, they still have a lot of money. So right, right. Um, that's a question for Apple to answer, and, and notably, they didn't really provide one. Um, they're guiding for next quarter to continue to have low growth, negative growth, if you will. Um, so there's no immediate answer, at least until September when the iPhone 7 comes out, right? You know, all you can do at this point is kind of shrug and, you know, see what, what's next, because Apple sort of needs to have an answer for... Do they go after more customers, or do they continue to serve the existing customers? Well, I have a question. So, for the people driving their cars, and they can't see this chart that's on the site, but there's a there's definitely a hump there where the iPhone six came out, like like Aaron is saying in the curve. But there, somewhere, there's, they're talking about a projected one to one point five percent shrinkage that yeah. was sort of predicted. Was that sort of was Apple predicting that, or is that just generally the way markets work with new products? And it's based on what the current trend was. If you look at like Q1 okay, yeah, 2014 yeah. Yeah. to Q3 or 4 of 14, yeah. Yeah. you can see those last three quarters were declining at a 1.5. So clearly the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus um, size or style of phone was something that the market was demanding, even though we all predicted it wasn't really a necessary thing, right? Obviously, it did it did create a bump for Apple. Yeah, but you know what? Yeah. The, the story that I sort of took from what was happening back in 2014 is that there were a lot of customers who were maybe on Android. Oh, yeah. And who loved the bigger phones and would be, I, I you know, I'd get an iPhone, but, you know, Apple's phones are all tiny. Um, and who jumped on board in a big way, you know? And remember Tim Cook saying, half of our customers, 50% of the people that buy an iPhone are first-time buyers, you know? I can imagine a lot of those people were Android converts who were coming over because there was finally a larger iPhone. Um, And meanwhile, like, the existing pool of iPhone customers were hanging on to their phones. Like, we knew this anecdotally, at least, that many iPhone users on on a 5 or a 5S were 
we're waiting for Apple to come out with a four inch six, you know, something that didn't happen until like last month. Right, right. Yeah, we won't see the result of that for another three months anyway. That's right. It's interesting, too, because, I mean, like, I could see that maybe, you know, when we were all early adopters of the iPhone, you know, technology and idea, and uh, there was phenomenal growth in, in, the, in the outset. But now that all of us have iPhones, as it were, if you, if you think about, like, how much how much of the market has it, you know, we're just trying to, they're just trying to satisfy those late adopters, you know, the ones whose VCR still flash 12 kind of thing, right? <laughs> Um, to use uh, Simon Sinek's analogy. So there's so much, like, you know, you can only have, you can only entice people with a new iPhone, you know, once sort of thing. But it was a sort of corollary uh, analogy I read about yesterday, which is that, um, apparently, I, the Apple Watch they they project that they they project that they sold more uh, watches last year, even though it's a flop of a device, then they sold iPhones in the first year that the iPhone was out, right? Right. So that's kind of you know, and that I think that speaks to how pervasive the um, and I don't mean that in a negative sense, but uh, how pervasive the i the app iWatch or uh, Apple phone you know Apple branded <laughs> people what what can I call them iPhone um, users iPhone users yeah thank you um, and watch you know adopters who are out there you know it's obviously it's it it has take it on more of the market than than uh, we thought perhaps i mean last year i mean admittedly you know i was sort of going yes i'm going to get a watch because i'm i'm going to develop for it which by the way i haven't done so yet but i didn't think that it would be something that would be earth shattering unless it, i didn't think it would be the next iphone kind of thing how a lot of people were sort of wringing their hands and hoping it was right but i um, don't know that anyone ever believed that yeah, and then now that it, and we've had it for a while, and then Watch 1.0, and, and uh, there's a couple of interesting articles out, and I probably should put them in the, in the I'll link them in the show notes about uh, how what people are saying about after um, having the the watch for a while and living with it and seeing what it does. Our friend Rich Turton, friend uh, Rich. who works for, who works for Martin Graft, yeah. Um, he wrote an article on their blog about uh, what the iPhone, or sorry, what the Apple Watch is good for, and it's a, it's an interesting read. And I'll link that into the show notes for people as well. But it's, this is all good stuff. I mean, yeah. But uh, I think maybe Apple would do better with their stocks and, and whatnot if they paid attention to the current users who have always been, in my experience, very much into hey, Apple's got a new update. Let's put it on because Apple knows what they're doing. But recently, it's been like, ooh, oh, I don't know if I want to update my phone because, like, I don't want it to break. And that's scary. It has never been like that for people, at least not for me, with Apple. And now it's it seems to be more that than the mm-hmm. other thing. And I think maybe that's why Apple stock is, I don't want to say tanking because that's not really what it's doing. But I think that's why it's losing some ground is because us diehard Apple folks are leery about doing updates and the direction of things and i know that when people come to me first i i need to say that yes apple is still the best thing on the market like there's nothing that apple's doing currently that would make me run to something else but i still don't feel that that way that i felt years ago and i hate to say it but when steve was in charge i'm leery myself of doing updates i i have a hard time when when people call me and say hey you know, Apple on my on my iPhone has been bugging me, which incidentally bugs me all the time to do this update every day. Should I update? And I'm like, mm, yeah, uh, you might want to just wait just a little. 
You know, and it's never been like that. And it bothers me. Yeah. And do you think that some of our, our sort of unease is sort of spreading itself out into the market? Like, because I think that's where the Apple stock is bought by people who aren't necessarily Apple users per se, right? But do you think... I do. I think there's a there's a, an energy that, that we as a community put out. And even though, again, I say that Apple is the best thing out there right now, at mm-hmm. least for me and for the people that I know, I still have that little bit of, you know, it's like, ooh, oh, is there gum on the bottom of my <laughs> shoe? Like, what did I step in something? What What is that smell? But, you know, and I keep my shoes on because I need right, my shoes, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's funny. This latest update has been particularly annoying on the on the iOS devices, especially on my iPad, um, because it's blocky. It, it you know it says you want to update now or later, and immediately I can't figure out what choice to to make to not have it pop in my face and go okay, okay, let's do this now, sort of thing. Really annoying. Anyway, and it never has been like yeah. that. Well, it's... You know, it never Apple. Apple always got out. The interface always was out of your way. You you practically yeah. didn't even realize you were interfacing with something because the interface was secondary to whatever activity right, it was right. you're doing. And now it's like the interface is always in your face and you're very aware of it. And that makes me uneasy as well. Right. Which update are we talking oh, about? 931, I think. Like, All of them. <laughs> that that's That's just patently false. I just don't agree right. with any of that. I mean, we've we've seen updates burn You've us. You've seen updates burn you. Yeah, yeah, but that was like eight point eight point zero point one. Like we we had a situation last year where that happened, like where there was like a widespread, well known and documented case where the update like crapped out your your cellular. Since then. I don't know of any widespread issue that burned anyone on an update. Yeah, I think what what I meant about being blocky is that I'm in the middle of trying to do things and, and this alert comes up and you have to deal with it. You can't just say, go away for a few minutes while I do something. It, you know, Lately on my iPad Pro, I've been saying, go away, and it's been going, okay, when would you like me to go away till? Like, no, no. What are we talking about? It's a, just a dialogue that opens up on it's your screen. Update. It just it, blocks the entire thing. And to do... Yeah, and to it do may, a software yeah, update. Yeah, and every may, day, every day. If you say, why don't no, you install it? Eventually, well, because if you're in the middle of doing something, maybe now is not a convenient time to do it, right? Because sometimes it takes half an hour to, for these updates to run. It's just you know. Anyway, it's, it's annoying. I think we're getting off topic here, but yeah, yeah, way off. I'm on the show. We're always going to get off topic. I'm so sorry. I want to hear what uh, Jaime has to say about uh, the um, uh, watch and the stock dive and any kind of. So I think there's a. a Three different things that I heard here. Um, one related to this chart, which people can't see, but it's you know going down except for that bump that was described for um, the six and six S. Uh, worth pointing out, these are percentage changes that are being graphed, not absolute volume, um, which is interesting because I think if you are an investor. You really don't care what they're selling, nor do you really care how they come about it. You just really care that you bought in at X and you want X plus percentage, right? That's how you make your investment decision. So the investors are are looking at it as like, oh, maybe uh, we're approaching the maximum number of people that could possibly be sold an iPhone, right? There's only 7 billion people. I mean, there's a, a finite limit. We know it. It's around 7 billion people in the world. If you assume that every single person could buy one. Uh, and that will grow in you know over time, but it's not going to be huge percentage changes, 
right? It's always going to, it should decline as they get closer to that um, maximum point. So that's worth pointing out. And I think that's something that's, that's getting lost. It's like, oh, like, it's not like Apple sold, you know, half as many iPhones as it had ever sold before uh, sort of thing, right? It's, it's more uh, like, hey, uh, we didn't double this year as we did last year. And last year was an insane mm-hmm, year, mm-hmm. right? It was just like the, the, the best quarter of, of all time ever. Uh, the other thing related to uh, does this reach out to other individual folks? And I think it's it's a fair point, right? So a lot of the, the misinformation that comes out related to, um, you know, stock analysis or people hear about things through um, either Apple diehards such as ourselves and, and folks listening at home, uh, or they just got burned themselves. Like, we live and breathe this thing, right? So if, if iOS 10 comes out and has, oh my God, it's the best release ever. It's super performant. It has zero bugs. The average individual on the street who doesn't, you know, breathe this thing in and out every day doesn't know. You know what they perceive? Whatever burned them, right? And they got burned by something like iOS 7 and being janky. They certainly got burned by iOS 8.0, which was an utter mess, right? And those take a long time to sort of clear out of the collective consciousness, like we're already turning our attention to iOS 10 and the next upgrade to Mac OS 10. Everybody else is like, yeah, when I went from iOS 6 to 7, everything moved and I couldn't use it. Or when I went from 7 to 8, you know, I lost half my space. I couldn't, you know, save any photos, couldn't save mm-hmm. any videos. Mm-hmm. That's what they think of. So th- th- there's that aspect too. So I think it is important to be, you know, as, as good as possible so that the um, the evangelists, such as ourselves, even if the unofficial ones, can help keep that perception in the marketplace for the like average right, person yeah, on the street. Yeah. Well, I was going to say there was definitely a dive yesterday. Like I uh, just looked at Yahoo. I'm looking at Yahoo um, stock on for Apple, um, and looking at you know on Tuesday we were hovering around 104 dollars, um, and then opening Wednesday morning it went dropped down to like 97. So there was a huge drop, um, and I think that was uh, coincided with with the the stock announcement or the performance announcement by Tim Tim Cook, right? So that's kind of sort of why I asked the question at the beginning about how we're doomed and so on and so forth. Yeah, and, and I think it's good to get some of that information out there to counter the, the misinformation. I think we've we've done a pretty good job here of covering that. But like, uh, if it's down to like 98 dollars, I might actually buy a few shares now and wait for it to come back up because I think it will. <laughs> Yeah. Right, right. Now, with regard to the watch, what was the specific question you had? Well, it's just that I, I saw a comment yesterday. Uh, I don't have my link to the article, but uh, that, you know, even though it was a, it's considered a flop as a device, they've actually sold more watches than iPhones when the iPhone initially came out. My, it was a different market, different, you know, uh, landscape back then uh, when Apple was selling watches in the first place. But it was just an interesting observation that somebody had made uh, in an article yesterday. Yeah, I think it's interesting. So, I mean, I'm, to be fair, I'll, I'll put this through the lens of, you know, I am an active Apple Watch user. I'm fully aware of every positive thing and every negative thing um, about this device. But in terms of looking at it from a the lens of, is it a flop? I think it it depends on whether you're being realistic or whether you're being, like, an investor. If you're an investor, you want, like, hey, I've spent a ton of money on this stock. I need this to be the mm-hmm. next iPhone because, I, again, yeah. I spent a ton of money. I don't have stock from, you know, when the company was going out of business. I have stock from when the company is the number one company in the world. And it's hard to see an investment right, change right. on that, right? Um, Microsoft knows this quite well, where their stock stayed level for a very long time because they were 
a monopoly. Like they could not get any bigger in any fast swing sort of change where, oh, we opened up in China and now we've doubled everything. Like there was nobody else left to sell to uh, in huge right. leaps and bounds. So the, the, the watch is, is, from a realistic standpoint, we can say that it is the number one smartwatch of all time. Nothing has ever outsold it. Nothing is even close, right? This one manufacturer does better than everybody else. Could the device itself be better? Absolutely. There's huge problems like with speed and everything else. So I don't know. Calling it a flop, I think, is hyperbole. It's absolutely not a flop. Is it? Is it an iPhone? No, it's not. No. And it never could yeah. be, right? It's an accessory. It's not an independent device. I just found the article. I think this may be the article I was reading yesterday or saw yesterday that uh, it actually talks about how Apple, the Apple Watch, quote, air quotes, flop, outsold Rolex last year. Look, I don't, I don't even like the watch personally. I don't use it. Um, I have one. I, I was going to develop for it, but it's just not something that I do. Not, you know, I don't, I just, I'm not a watch person. That being said, I don't think it's even close to a miserable failure. I know people who can't get out of bed practically without putting on their mm -hmm. Apple Watch. So while it may not be right for everyone, it is definitely right for a lot of people. So I, a failure? Nah. <laughs> not even nope. close. Well, like I said, there's a, there's a good article. I'll link it in the show notes by uh, Rich, Rich Turton. Uh, what is the Apple good for? Apple Watch good for? And he talks about some of the strengths of it. You know, notifications, setting timers while you're cooking, uh, different kind of stuff. So, and I don't think he's a huge Apple Watch fan, but he's got a good writes a good good praise for it. So, yeah, again, it's not for everybody, but for the people that it that it works for, it's it's a brilliant piece of technology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think, I th yeah, I think I don't think we've seen the the end of it by any stretch. So. Um, Shall we move on to other things, Aaron, perhaps? Apple is now enforcing native apps for apps that are submitted to the App Store after June 1st. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's not the longest news release Apple's ever published. <laughs> Any new watch app submitted to the store must be native, built with the watch oh, really? 2 SDK. Huh. That's starting June 1st. So any existing apps in the store for the watch uh, that use um oh heck what's it called is that oh heck 1.0 or it's not watch os yet no it's, uh, uh yeah it's something else like watch, watch kit, kit. Yeah. is that what you mean for the 1.0 yes watch kit that's what i was struggling for this is me as not a watch os developer by any stretch so bear with me the uh watch os sdk like we're saying basically they have to be native they cannot be those projected apps from the phone anymore. And I don't think a lot of developers jumped all over this when watchOS mm -hmm. 2 came That's out. That's true. So this is Apple putting their foot down, I think. And preparing us probably for watchOS 3. Perhaps. Or watchOS S. No. 2S, 2.5. <laughs> Snow watch Snow, OS. Snow yes. 2. Yeah, I, I think this kind of ties into what we were just talking about with the perception piece, where... Um, I'll, I'll say it in a way that hopefully I won't have to backpedal in a future episode too much. Uh, so I'll caveat it with, like, I'm sure there were a lot of really smart people working really hard um, on this product to get it out on the time frames that they were asked to. However, my humble opinion is that WatchKit, the, you know, the 1.0 version of, of uh, WatchOS, was a really bad idea, mm -hmm. right? It made terrible trade-offs on the speed of the watch experience, you know, something that's 
supposed to be measured in seconds, not in tens of seconds. And it gives that impression that, you know, to the average person who doesn't live and breathe and say, oh, look, if you just upgrade to app 1.2, this one actually has a watchOS 2 and it's like twice as fast. It's like average person doesn't know. All they know is, oh, I tried my friend's thing to look at this one app and it was just spinning there. I just saw this little flower spinning for 10 seconds and then the screen Mm -hmm. went away. Right. Like that's terrible. Like clearly the right business decision and the right technical decision, in my opinion, would have been just have the apps that Apple ships by default with the watch. Very similar to you just get what comes in the box for the original iPhone. And then when they're really ready, watchOS 2 should have been watchOS 1, right? Or WatchKit mm-hmm. 1, whatever you want to call it. The equivalent of when we got access to the App Store um, with, with native apps. That, I think, would have been much more of an encouragement for people to say, oh, yeah, I want to develop for this too, right? And and as an aside here, I'd say it would have also been nice to incentivize developers by letting them do, like, in-app purchase or charge straight up for being able to add watch mm-hmm. connectivity. Because instead, what we ended up having is like, oh, here's this thing. Uh, it interacts in this janky kind of way from a developer standpoint. And, oh, now, by the way, you can't charge for that. And, oh, we've did this update where you have to go back and redo the jankiness to make it not janky. And there's really no good reason for you to do this other than out of the kindness of your heart, because there's no legitimate business reason Mm -hmm. for you to do this if you're looking to make money from the app itself rather than some sort of um, advertising model or some sort of subscription service completely unrelated to that experience. And I honestly don't know. Like, I look at... At apps, unless they explicitly call it out in their release notes, I have no clue if an app is using watchOS 2 or WatchKit unless it's using something that I know for a fact is only available in watchOS 2. Well, I guess that's the question. Do you do you can you recognize that a, a, a watchOS 2 app is that much faster or more performant? They generally tend to be, but I do think that there is a, a limit based on the performing uh, sorry the performance trade offs that Apple made right. with the watch. Right, so the Regardless of what people out there think, like, this is as good as the battery life could possibly be in this form factor. Uh, It can't be much better. Um, You know, the uh, everybody's asking for, like, by golly, why doesn't Apple just make it thinner and double the battery life? Like, because Because physics, (laughs) because they'd have a trillion dollar industry if they had that battery technology. Right. That's why Tesla is so exciting. Not cars, it's batteries. so if they could do that impossible, then great. Uh, I think they made a pretty good trade-off, for, you know, for most cases of, you know, not running out of battery life during the day. Um, but they they just cranked it way too conservative where, you know, I, I'll i go to sleep. I'll still have the watch on. I'll wake up. It'll have maybe 10 to 20 percent, you know, from me having worn it, you know, right. from the yeah. previous morning. Um, and that's okay. I mean, that's sure. That's fine. I usually charge it up when I'm, you know, eating breakfast and showering in the morning and whatnot. And it's back to hundred um, percent. But my phone, even the six plus wouldn't last quite that long. Right. And I use that pretty heavily, uh, like intently heavily, not seconds at a time. I'm using it for minutes, sometimes, you know, tens of minutes to hours at a time. So I think if they could just crank up the ability to have two things, one is, um, processing speed would be great as well as, um, you know, just making that radio connection between the watch and the phone 
a little bit more aggressive because there's nothing more irritating than seeing like, hey, I sure would like to look at this glance. Oh, the glance timed out. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's try to update, you know, like what's it going to take for me to get home sort of things. Well, that's completely pointless. I might as well just open my phone, right? And, but there's watch apps that don't suffer from that, right? Like I, um, unless I walked into a lead line tunnel, I never run into an issue with the weather um, app, right? The one that comes default Apple, installed yeah. with uh, the watch like it's fantastic like it's somehow magically always has itself updated i love that app yeah the weather app is is one of the better apps for sure yeah i've seen that app update yeah. you know you switch into that app and it does load very quickly but it does load as you look at it but it gives you something to look at when you're loading that's as the I've other point it. about it right well it's it's showing yeah. old data yeah. you know when it's loading um oh wait <laughs> i just tried it now and uh, it said no weather data and it flashed that for like yeah, about two seconds, and now now I've got it. But uh, I love how you can like toggle through the three like precipitation, temperature, and mm-hmm. uh, sky conditions. Uh, I just love that app, and it's like in a dial. It's like one of my favorite weather apps on any platform. I got to be honest with you, I love it. How do you toggle through the different? Uh... Tap tap the face, and just tap it. Oh, cool! And it switches. Yeah, if you didn't know that, it's pretty amazing. That's definitely two point ish. Yeah. Um, in addition to what Jaime has had to say, I'd like to take a couple kicks at the Apple Watch myself, All right. um, <laughs> since we're here. And I'll preface this, of course, with the proviso that I am a big fan of the Apple Watch and remain so. I use it every day, wear it every day, never not wearing my watch. Okay, so let's just put that there. <laughs> um, I think what the Apple Watch needs is a very serious rethink about its whole interaction model. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the watch face is great. The complications are great, uh, but that's about where it ends. You know, there are some uh, decent glances. Uh, the apps are pretty near useless for me. You know, like having just said what I did about the weather app, I recognize that that's an app, but it doesn't have to be an app in the classic sense, I don't think. Like the whole notion of going back to the springboard, you know, um, or whatever they call it on the watch, the um, the app yes. screen, okay, where you sco- scoot around. I remember when I was uh, first looking at the the launch of the Apple Watch, and they showed us that app screen. Uh, I fell in love with it. I thought it was the most amazing thing. But over time, it turns out that this this thing's a total waste of time. <laughs> um, it looks super sharp, but like I never go here, and no, I don't know anyone who does. You know, and and if there's one person out there that just put their hand up and glared at the radio, or you know iPhone. Um, sorry, but you're in the minority. You know, most people are not using the app screen to get to different apps. Um, you know, for all the reasons we talk about, they're really super slow to launch. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't do a whole heck of a lot, uh, because it's a very anemic platform, but there are definitely great things that you can do on the watch. Um, but that are uh, much more integrated into its basic functions, like the weather complication that just opens up like a larger detail view to the user, doesn't appear to be a, a separate formal application. Um, it's like an extension of, of the watch face. And I think if Apple really backed away from that whole idea of, of apps and considered something more integrated, like extended complications, if you will, mm-hmm. and then somehow came up with an interaction mechanism to, uh, to let you access more of those sorts of things without the burden and the formality of an app screen then I think they could be really onto something new and different um, rather than trying to iPhoneify the watch, which which they've clearly been doing here. And I think have failed at in a very large way. Rant off. 
Good rant. Meanwhile, I was, you know, the whole time I was talking, I'm getting like Tweetbot notifications and MLB at bat notifications and so ah. so so you're saying so like so what you you interact with um, through glances and notifications and complications is how you access the watch, right? No, not glances. Let's take the glances off the table because I don't think those are very useful either. The little swipe, the things where you swipe down from the top. You mean yeah? Uh, swipe up from the bottom. Oh, those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like that, you know, you swipe up from the bottom on the watch face, and you get like the. The things that you run through, the glances that I never use, you know, and like half the time that you um, you get to a screen, a, a glance, um, it has to load its data for you. I don't find that useful at all. But uh, notifications are one thing I didn't mention in my little rant there, and they are huge, you know, like they are so important, um, especially the ones that allow you to do actions like the very excellent Outlook app, um, which at the very least, you know, allows you to archive or delete um or dismiss, right? Or you can even reply if you like. But just being able to archive a message that comes into my mailbox, I see it on my wrist, and I'm like, yeah, not interested, and I never have to look at it again mm-hmm. on any other phone or Mac. I just hit archive, it's gone. Yeah. Love that. You know, more things need to be like that. Well, just for the sake of science, I do use a couple of glances. Like when I'm walking uh, to catch, you know, transit in the morning and a song comes on my phone and I I don't know what it is. I'll just, you know, call the glance up and see what's playing. Uh, that's kind of handy, and then I, I, you're right. I totally, I totally love the notifications. It's just like all day long, my wrist is buzzing, and I just glance at it real quick, and you know, instantly make a decision about whether I need to deal with something or not. That's awesome. And then, like you said, I use the weather app all the time. Being in Canada and wondering when spring is going to come, you know, still waiting. Still waiting. Yeah. So now, now I can look at precipitation now that Aaron schooled me on how to use my phone, my watch. Yeah. I'm I'm hoping that watchOS three is way is a is a real is a rethink. You know, like I I, I tend to doubt Apple's conviction in backtracking like that. You know? So, do you think there's a watch two hardware coming soon? Or yeah, I do. I think it'll it'll be. I think we'll see it before the end of the year. Um, I I think. Um, let me think here. One of the things I didn't read the transcript from the call this week, but I do seem to recall someone mentioning that Tim was talking about the watch being a strong holiday play. Mm-hmm. Um, are, can you guys back me up on that? Or well, I do. I can. We can sort of work it out too, because I think the the watch was originally introduced in October, if I'm not mistaken, like first it, announced. Yeah, right? first announced and made on sale in April, right, of last year. Um, but then it, in this this recent holiday quarter. Um, I think they sold a ton of them. Mm-hmm. And so I believe Tim Cook said that the watch was a very strong holiday player. And if that is the case, then that lends credence to the idea that we're going to see a refresh on the watch mm-hmm. in the fall. And I suspect that there will probably be one or two, as they've done in the past, um, events in the September or October timeframe where they launch the new iPhones um, and the new watches. And it could be that the iPad, uh, with it all going pro, may shift to spring as a refresh time like they did with the uh the 9.7 inch pro that just came out just speculating here but you know that's what i think so yeah i do think we're going to see a watch 2 um and i think that uh, at wwdc we're going to see watch os 3 you think okay but the question is will we see a rethink of what watch os is so i think those go kind of hand in hand in some respects right because i i don't personally expect the hardware itself to be 
dramatically changed. I mean, I think there'll be some nice things like, oh, it, you know, it can do FaceTime or maybe it's got LTE or it's got a GPS on board, you know, more of like an S version, just like the, the S models for the, the iPhones themselves. Uh, if I had to bet money, I would guess it would be more of like uh, an S model upgrade. And then next, you know, subsequent model would be the opportunity to have, hey, now this is 10 times as fast as the original Apple Watch. And it's got the now rethink of that whole experience uh, that needs all that extra juice to power it. You think it'll ever be independent? I think eventually, yes. Like, I, will it be a, a hundred percent one to one replacement for the phone? I don't. I don't know that that's really possible given the constraints. Um, not just you know, assume you could leach battery uh, from like the ether. Um, you still have this, you know, couple postage stamps sized screen. You you can't do the same things that you can with a an iPhone or an iPad or a Mac. Like each one of those is somewhat of a different experience, I think. Yeah, but hypothetically, yeah. could it meet your needs? Just like uh, there are plenty of folks who get away with just having you know just an iPad as their primary computer, or even some folks out there who have only an iPhone as their primary computer. I I think it could. Wow, I would believe that when I see it. I don't know about that. Um, I can believe the Apple Watch could stand on its own someday, but I just don't see it becoming any kind of productivity tool. I don't know. Well, who knows, eh? Down the road? <laughs> Far enough on an infinite time scale? <laughs> we'll have to see about that one. Hey, more than just code listeners. Are you ready for indie dev stock? This September 16th and 17th in Nashville, Tennessee, at the Gaylord Opryland Resort and Convention Center, some of the brightest minds will be attending Indie DevStock. Join us for two days and learn from the industry's best designers, developers, and entrepreneurs. Professionals like Greg Heo, Ellen Shapiro, Janie Clayton, Simon Allardyce, and many more. Our speakers will share their stories, experiences, and insights with you. They'll discuss the challenges indies face and, more importantly, how to overcome them. But you don't have to be an indie to attend. Indie Dev Stock is made for everyone, whether you're just starting out or have been an indie for years. Indie Dev Stock is about making connections and sharing new ideas. While you're there, explore Nashville and Music City, the place where music is inspired, written, recorded, and performed. For more details and to register for Indie Dev Stock, visit IndieDevStock.com. We hope to see you there. What's your ad-free internet thing link about? Okay. okay. Um, <laughs> uh, so this was a, a piece published by Apple Insider earlier this week uh, by Daniel Aaron Dilger. Is it Dilger or Dilger? I'm going to go with Dilger. I'm a soft G kind of guy. Jeff forever. So God. <laughs> um, it's, it's basically an op-ed piece, and um, I kind of like the point that it's coming at because I see Apple sort of standing alone as a technology company, and this is one of the chief ways that it can do that. Um, IAD, the uh, Apple-created ad network, uh, which was their way of trying to help 
developers monetize their free apps by giving them sort of high quality banner ads that they could put in their apps um, really fizzled it didn't do very well at all and um, ultimately they've they've killed it they've abandoned iad all altogether so iad is history and apple is officially out of mm-hmm. the ad game the uh, author of this post uh long time um editorialist you might say uh talking about apple uh considers the fact that Apple is out of that game and is looking at Apple's entrance into all kinds of different media. So, like, apps are one, but there's also uh, music through Apple Music. There's books with iBooks, and there's Apple TV, and there's all of these experiences, none of which have any kind of native ad support, and which, in fact, are... um, uh, the opposite of that, they are premium paid for upfront kind of experiences. That is sort of like looking at Apple l- going into all these different areas of media and making them sort of ad free zones on the web. And that is uh, very interesting to me. You know, like you can be an Apple customer, and if you were buying in fully to Apple's platforms, then you don't necessarily have to look at ads that much. And uh, that's a very interesting uh, position to be in the market, especially when you sit them up against Google, who live and die by their ad revenue, and who, in this article, it said some three quarters of their ad revenues come from iOS, which is kind of (laughs) scary. If you're Google, that's scary. So if if Apple finds a way to move more and more of those customers to um, to different media offerings than where Google is on the iPhone, then they're going to strangle Google and they're going to have a a really hard time maintaining their revenues. So uh, check out this article. Uh, You know, it's a lot more detail than what I said. Uh, It rambles a little bit, I'm sorry, but um, it does get to a very good point. So if you've got like 10 minutes and you want to go through this, then highly recommend it. Okay, well, why don't we go to Jaime's thing? (laughs) <laughs> Which thing would that be? What would you guys like to do? would you like to talk about next? May I may I suggest one? Um because sure. I I got a good kick out of this too. Uh Stripe introducing bring your own team. Go. Yeah, this one's really weird. So this is from uh Avi or Avi Bryant of Stripe. It's a blog post that we'll have in the show notes. And the whole idea is that they've apparently gotten to the point where, you know, just like everybody else we're finding it really difficult to hire, you know, good quality developers, mm-hmm. right? Apple, Facebook, Google, average, you know, mom and pop development shop down the street. Everybody's suffering from that problem of, of finding and attracting talent. This takes a little bit of a different method where instead of you as an individual just going off as your own, it's like, well, okay, you know, I've had a lot of fun with uh, these folks I work with, but I'm kind of looking for something new. Uh, maybe I'll go join a company like Stripe. There are folks who, rightfully so, don't want to leave uh, their great team. Uh, certainly, I've worked with some really great teams that, you know, it was a real bummer to to part ways with them, you know, for, for career reasons or, or life reasons or whatever the case may be. Stripe is offering an alternative here where, hey, we will interview all of you, whatever your group is, and uh, we can hire all of you at once, you know, as a, as a team, like you've already gelled with that, uh, you know, those team members and we can bring you on. And apparently it's, uh, the offers are individually acceptable. So, um, 
I don't know, if there's a team of four and uh, one of you says, yeah, you know, I don't really think this is quite for me. It looks like Stripe is okay. It's like, oh, well, at least we got three developers out of it rather than you know, none at all. Given that, you know, some of those other developers, the other three developers who, you know, would have accepted, maybe they would not have gone for this sort of opportunity as an individual because they just really love working with Sally and Bob. <laughs> I, I'm just, my brain just went boom. I don't get this. At the end, he says, uh, the industry is always focused on hiring atoms. We'd like to try hiring Ooh. molecules. I can't, I cannot fathom um, what team is going to sit around the table and say, you know what, F this. Whatever we're working on right now, it's not happening. Let's go apply to Stripe. You know? Like, who who's doing that? Is it a failed startup? Is that what it is? Is it um, some kind of development agency that's failing? It's, it's the only thing I can come up with is that it's it's somebody that's not succeeding elsewhere or a team that's not succeeding elsewhere. What about downsizing? Um, so like a company that has like a team that they would otherwise just fire or lay off, they would say, hey, go apply at Stripe. No, I don't think that they would tell them to go apply at Stripe. But what if the team would? Right. I mean, I, I right. listen, I don't get it either. <laughs> I'd be lying if I said I get this because I don't. But I'm just saying if if there were if there was a company out there and that company for whatever reason had, you know, eight teams and they decided that okay, we don't need these eight teams, we can do it in six. You know, maybe those other teams would get together and come across this strange idea of hiring molecules and be like, "Hey, uh y'all want to apply to the same place cuz we love working together." I, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't get it. <laughs> I just don't know what... I wonder what Stripe is thinking by doing this. You know, is is it just a bald attempt to, you know, throw their net in the water and see if they can rake in a few extra people? Uh, well, I think they is? did say it was an experiment, right? Yeah, they, they did say that, you know. But I, I'm not inclined to take them at their word. I, I feel like they need to... They, they, they must have some reason. Or some some scenario in mind, if not a particular team. <laughs> you think they're they're going after someone? Possibly. Maybe. Stranger things have happened. Maybe it's your old co-founders, your college roommates, your collaborators on an open source project, or even <laughs> your siblings. I I just gotta shake my head. And it's probably a lot like. I wonder, I wonder this, if it's a lot like Facebook, the way they hire. And we talked about this around the time that Greg uh, started working with them. Uh, I think I, I asked, um, you know, why are they not, or why is Greg not being hired for a particular role? He's, he's hired by the company uh, generically, as it were, as a developer. And he's going to go through some training. And then six weeks later, he'll be spat out of that training. And then at that point, he'll be told what he's working on or get to choose. Uh, whichever it's not very clear i wonder if it's similar in stripe they they just need developers and they they need them all over the place so do they even have something in mind when a team and you can imagine a team isn't just developers you know i presume that there might be a a designer in there um a, a manager perhaps of some kind salesperson i don't know um but those people you know would maybe or maybe not uh, be amenable to getting slotted in to a particular department or project? Or is this an opportunity to start a new project inside of Stripe? 
Again, shrug. I'm curious, by the way, what does Stripe do? <laughs> no idea. They are oh, okay. a payment processor, okay. so they provide... Um, yeah, payment solutions for websites, uh, in particular for developers. Uh, ever since they launched, they have been enormously successful at uh, getting developers to integrate their. Do they use that little card reader thing? Is that um, the same company I'm thinking of? No, no, you're Where, thinking right. of Square, and uh, goodness knows there's mm. enough confusion mm-hmm. there to make that happen. So yeah. Um, yeah, in the in, as a web developer, for example, it was it's always been enormously painful gateways, to take yeah, payments sure. on your yep. site, right? You know, yeah, payment gateways uh, used to be the only way to do it. Uh, you use something like Authorize.net, um, or in Canada. Oh, hang on, hang on, I've almost got it. No, I don't have it. You know the one that's owned by Royal Bank. Damn. Moneris? No. Moneris. Thank you. Yes, Moneris. Those guys are tough, man. <laughs> Whew. Getting getting by them all the oh, approvals yeah, that yeah, you yeah. need to uh, ooh, oh baby, but then if when Stripe came along, they're like you know what, as a developer, your server hosts none of it. This is all done through JavaScript, and we host everything. So you take this JavaScript and you just plop it on your site, and it's all secure and it goes through our servers. You don't touch anything. You don't get to know anything about the customer, you know, except to identify them, of course. But uh, we handle all the payment information. You handle none of it, and. You know, 20 minutes later, a developer's got, like, payment gateway, you know, working on their site, and everybody's so happy. They crap themselves. And so that's why they got so successful. And they're big now. They're big. Very big. Eric's Always hiring. Kill me with how many times he says Java this episode. Just <laughs> Did I say Java? I don't <laughs> remember saying Java. Java at all. Java. I said, I, said ja- I said JavaScript, which is totally different, and therefore the pronunciation's different. Uh, don't, don't get me off track there, Koran. Um, okay. So, anywho, uh, weird. That's all I got to say. That's my that's my summary. It is a, it is a strange model. Yeah. So one thing, uh, a couple things worth pointing out. One is that Stripe um, also supports other platforms, uh, native platforms in particular, right? So they support Apple Pay as well as Android Pay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, the PCI compliance yeah. piece that they're doing for the payment processing can't be like, just like. HIPAA that you don't want to deal with. You don't want to deal with PCI. You do not either. want to know. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right, right. And they've been uh, quite successful in helping people set up uh, marketplace type things, right? So uh, some of their competitors out there were balanced, pay- excuse me, balanced payments, uh, Braintree, right. hypothetically a Venmo, hypothetically a PayPal. Uh, but one thing they also do really well is... In general, they handle the, or now uh, within the last six months to maybe a year, they handle the uh, tax implications. I'm not really quite sure how this works in Canada, but in the United States, you know, if somebody you know sells stuff like on eBay and they get beyond a certain threshold of you know number of items or total quantity and or both, whichever comes first, that sort of thing, there's some sort of tax form that you have to send to the USA's uh-huh. Internal Revenue Service to say, hey, verily, this is going on the books because this is a big enough tax piece. You know, you're selling all your you know, used socks on eBay and you're <laughs> making $20,000 a year off of the, hey, guess what? That's income that needs to be reported. Wow. They care explicitly <laughs> about that. So if you're, you know, you're making, you know, my Etsy competitor.com, uh, and not having to deal with that piece is a big part of the reason other than, you know, the, the, the PCI compliance and the ease of use and so on and so forth that you would say, oh, yeah, I, I want to use Stripe. I don't want to deal with that. I just want to sell widgets. Do not recommend that domain name, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, so it, with regards to, you know, Stripe doing this, I think they're just doing what everybody else is doing, of like trying every little thing you can, you know, looking under every rock to see, like, is there a developer there? Right. So I've certainly been uh, a couple situations where it's like, you know, hiring is just so hard uh, that uh, facetiously I've said to folks in team meetings, like, hey, the next thing that you should be asking yourself every morning when you go to get coffee is, does this person know any iOS developers? Are they an iOS developer themselves? Could they tell us if they run into any iOS developers? And the same thing on Android too, right? Because you no, know, have that responsibility. Um, it's tough, and and I think if you're a Stripe and you have the the size to accommodate, you know, a two to five person team without radically changing your you know corporate culture, sure. Uh, would it work for your two person shop? Probably not, because they've now they outnumber you. Uh, your very tiny startup, maybe not so much. But it's worth pointing out that a um, a lot of startups actually kind of work like this, right? We'll see, how many times have you seen in the news that, oh, such and such app or such and such service being built by the team that did XYZ right, right. that was super popular, right? There's entire teams that get funded without even having a product. Or even acquired. Like, oh, this is a team. Acquired, acquired, yeah. yeah. They yeah, get People just say, oh, this is a good team. Let's 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 give them money and let them go do great things. Yes, this is aqua hiring without the aqua. <laughs> you know? This is like, you know, getting a team for free. Yeah. In a way, you know, like instead of instead of getting the developers of uh, insert iOS based email client here, they just hire them. They don't they don't pay the principals like five million dollars and then get them to work for them. They just get them to work for them. Hmm. It's devious. Diabolical. It still seems that um, like the biggest um, trends that I'm seeing. And, you know, back me up on this or, or you know, say otherwise. Um, companies still want the best. They want the rock star ninjas. And they right, don't want right. to pay for them. No. Right? Like, in in it's just supply and demand. You would think that if there were more need for developers than there are developers, then companies would start yeah, paying that's, more Yeah, that's for true. Them. And I think, I think maybe that... Uh it, 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 there seems to be a, a more growth in terms of people or companies looking for developers. And now maybe you're starting to realize that we are few and far between, you know? Well, I haven't seen evidence that. Uh, no, I, no, more. neither have I. I mean, there's sort of, it's still status quo. And, and a lot of disappointing uh, conversations I had, you know, in the last 18 months before I got the job I've got, um, the offers were just ridiculously low, you know? So, I mean, not, not, crazy low but they were not acceptable um actually why don't we ask the guy that's actually hiring people right now so, so what's your specific question <laughs> where's the money well n- uh, in, a, in a very crass way like are you paying more than you used to for developers that's a and, good question i'm not actually dealing specifically with the the compensation part but let, let's let's chat about that briefly right so i work for a startup where um you know we're early stage enough where Quite frankly, uh, we would not be able to compete directly, you know, as we talked about last episode with the Facebooks mm, and Googles yeah. of the world who just throw down crazy money, even after you adjust for the cost of living in some place like Silicon Valley. Right. Right. Um, right now, this is the building stage where you're making that, you know, one of two bets, right? Uh, possibly both if you, if you get lucky. So one bet traditionally with startups is that, you know, you could get crazy rich. Right, you were second engineer at Uber, or you're like Marissa Meyer, you're engineer number twenty at Google. Um, 
that sort of thing, right? Or you're like, wow, this is going to be a super cool kick-ass environment to work in. Uh, yeah, I'm willing to take, you know, less overall pay for the greater flexibility or perhaps the greater um, self-fulfillment rather than being engineer number 2000 at some, you know, other corporation. That's sort of traditionally how those things play out, right? And, and, and I think uh, if Mark were here, he'd probably give something very similar, I think, uh, given uh, his experience. So I think it's what you're saying, Jaime, is that startups can't afford to compete uh, on salary with the larger companies. Not directly, and and they'll and it will depend on the stage, right? So right now, um, I guess Uber is still considered like a startup ish. It's, it's like like the tail end of startup, much more yeah, like yeah, young <laughs> company, right? Given their their yeah. size and success. Um, but let's consider them for the sake of argument in the startup category. They have boatloads of money that they can toss around now. Now they can compete one to one with with others, right? That's how they're plucking um, Carnegie Mellon University professors away to work on their automated driving systems. Um, that was certainly not the case when they didn't even have their seed round funding, right? When it was people being bootstrappy and trying to put something together to convince an angel investor to give them a seed round. And then after that, convince an investors or investors for their series A, B, C, they're like on series E or F now, I think. So right. it varies, right? Like you, there's just not like a magic, you know, pot of gold that you can just start distributing monies to folks. But I think, um, I feel very strongly though of fairly compensating people, right. Um, doing what's, uh, you know, what's right for that person. We're depending on their, desires for you know risk versus reward maybe they want to have a, a lower salary um than usual but are willing to you know accept a, a disproportionate amount of equity that's certainly one thing other folks at a different stage of their life where they can't make quite that change so maybe they want you know less equity so there's there's less upside uh, for the you know hit a grand slam while blindfolded <laughs> You know, at, at the bottom of the the ninth and the seventh game of the World Series, kind of crazy scenario things that like Uber and Pinterest uh, will give you, uh, and maybe they want you know much more salary to be closer in line with what they would be getting on the market, not one to one in line, but like reasonably close, given the other factors that are positive for a startup environment. Hmm. Yeah. What about your side, Tim? Um, I guess you're. Are you involved in the hiring, or is that handled by? Uh, well, it's handled by the, my my. Per, we have a people manager, and then we have like a tech manager. Um, my people manager is um, has been looking for uh, staffing for a number of projects that are supposed to be coming down the pipe. So they're trying to build a um, sort of a startup environment or uh, in in out in Waterloo. So they're they've got some people working out there. Um, like our team is is the majority of us are in Toronto, but there's some in Ottawa, some in London, and now some in Waterloo as well. So my role is doing the initial uh, screening and then and doing some interviewing as well, and and in recommending whether we would go ahead with somebody or not. So and we so, so we have some contractors and then we have some full time hires that we do as well. And clearly, I imagine having trouble finding enough bodies. Um, there seems to be a steady stream, I think. But I mean, a lot of them are fed by the the companies that we do the contract deals with, sort of thing. Hmm. Yeah. All right. I, I I'm okay. content to leave it at that. Alrighty. So what else? So, uh, by, by the way, so I put um, at the top of the note here, Aaron. You and I were talking 
back and forth on the Twitters last couple of days ago um, about the subject we were talking about last week on last show, and I'm just being kind of foggy on it. Um, mm, as am I. Oh, we talked about... Oh, hang on a sec, because it was in our DMs. One moment. Well, I, I joked about it. I saw a, a, an article on how to break out of the addicted to failure sort of avenue, and that sort of sparked yeah. it with me. Hang on, I'm trying to get the sense of what we were talking about. Okay, so... Last week we were talking about salaries. We talked about uh, people... Yes, yeah, because last week we talked about um, a room darkly... Uh, sorry, a dark room. <laughs> um Right. That fellow that developed that and posted his article on how he made over seven hundred thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars, and we we talked about it from the perspective of um, you know what what it takes to make a great game, like you know the the fact that uh, I said last week there is no yeah. step zero uh, make make a, a successful game. Uh, he was talking about the things that he did in order to help propel this mm-hmm. already successful game mm-hmm. to make that revenue. Um, but as I was listening to that show last week, uh, over the weekend, and this is when I DM'd you, Tim, to kind of complain about this, <laughs> uh, I think we neglected to mention like something that was hugely important and something that um, has come up before on this show, and that is that that does not really constitute success. The story that we talked about last week, making $700,000 and actually getting one hundred and fifty when all is said and done, um, does not constitute success. Um, what what we should really be looking for in labeling someone a successful indie app developer is sustained right. growth, really, or at least sustained income. Um, but what we have here instead, and what we've seen in other places where we've talked about successful indie developers, is a hit. One spike, and then back to the earth, really. Uh, stratosphere to earth. And a dark room from this developer that we spoke about last week was very successful. Uh, Everyone talked about it. He sold a lot of copies of the software and made Mm -hmm. a fair amount of money. But And he quit his job to do it, right? So classic indie success story. But as he published his own numbers, you know, Dark Room was three years ago, I think, and then he continued to develop games, but each one of them was um, significantly less successful. He made far less money on them, where to the point today where I imagine he's probably thinking about going mm-hmm. to get a job again. Um, I know I would be, and because he's he's not making that kind of money anymore. So uh, I think we need to be really mindful of talking about success um, as an indie developer being the sort of thing that has to be sustainable and can't be hits driven. Um, so while there was good advice last week that we were talking about in his article, um, I don't think that we can use it as a successful model. And uh, this thing that reminded me of it was when we talked right. about Overcast last year, when Marco published Overcast and made it a patronage model. He said, I'm not going to charge for this app anymore. Instead, I'm going to offer you the chance to give me a dollar a month. And there was no upside to doing so for any of this, the people that had the app. Um, although in his most recent version, he does now offer a dark mode, um, as well as the ability to upload your own recordings to have this podcast. It only works if you're a patron. All right. But it became very clear quickly that although he had an initial uh, rush of support, um, that that tailed off very quickly, right? To the point now where I don't think that, you know, an, 
a regular indie developer could sustain themselves on the income from Overcast, an app that I think many would consider to be very successful. It's absolutely one of the top podcasting apps mm-hmm. for iOS. We know that uh, Marco is doing just fine <laughs> by himself, uh, given that he had shares of Tumblr. Um, but, you know, so he's still able to sustain that. But I don't think that uh, if another developer had developed Overcast, you know, if we can do that thought experiment, I don't think we can conclude that someone in the same situation making the same money would be considered successful. Yeah. And that, yeah. And I think that my point to you, sorry to interrupt, was that that um, that's if that's if you think of being a developer as you're trying to build a business of being a developer, right? Because uh, exactly yeah, that's what we mean by being motivations indie. behind. Yeah, I realize that, but there are different motivations behind um, creating um, work, if you will. And I use the analogy from my past life as as a fine artist is that you know uh, you iterate through different things. You try different. You do studies. You do drawings. You do sculptures. You do little bits and pieces and little you know drawings on the back of napkins and that kind of stuff in preparation for creating bigger works and you know there are tons of stories of artists who will paint the same type of painting over and over again and then the one lands kind of thing and i'm not talking about cloning apps or cloning games and that kind of stuff but like in the case of this particular guy you know and in the case of marco there was sort of one or two significant pieces that they did in their craft that kind of took them beyond the, the the average developer, which you know I think you and I probably fall into, right? Um, and that's sort of so looking. So we see these stories, and I think that's kind of what you were talking about last week. This is what I got out of it was that you know we get these stories about these great successful one-offs or two-offs that some developer does or some firm does, and then the rest of the work is kind of. Um, you know, just doesn't really sort of f- fly off the shelves as much as, uh, say, a dark room did, right? That fair? Yeah. Indeed. Yeah, that's definitely fair. And I don't think that. Um, I think the big thing that I take away from those stories or those types of of narratives is that nobody yeah. knows yeah. what what is going to be yeah. successful. Even the people yeah. who are successful are as mystified about it as mm-hmm, we are. Mm-hmm. I think. You know, so a room darkly guy from last week, um, you know, goes so far as to write a, a, an extensive blog post and and is also writing a book on how to be successful in the app store thanks to his seven hundred thousand dollars in revenue, but he can't repeat it himself. Too bad Overcast is going to take away that silence. So I guess a couple of things come to mind. One would be. Um you know, depending on your particular needs, uh, maybe as an individual, if you make 150000 you know, let's say that covers over a three-year period, that's 50000 a year, assuming you didn't have much in the way of, you know, mortgage payments, car payments, and, you know, student loans, a, a spouse, kids that all need glasses and braces, you could <laughs> hypothetically, you know, put in three months into a game or an app make that amount of money and then spend the rest of the time learning how to play the guitar. I mean, that seems successful at some level, right? I mean, I don't know that it's for me, but that I, I could see how they're going to appeal to folks. Um, the other thing is like, I think there's some level of, uh, helping to make your own luck, right? Absolutely. There's, there's some aspect of luck and anything that's, you know, hit related is kind of depend on a ton of luck. Uh, I, I look at it as being sort of like, um, you know, 
poker if anybody has played that that card game right like i can tell you with a straight face right now i could walk into you know the top competitions and i could could beat every single one of them right i could beat the best professional poker player in the world could it's very unlikely that i will because they know how to make the odds in their favor they can't change the actual cards right the cards come out how the cards come out like you can't control the luck aspect but you can do things to to help your luck and i think what this individual is doing is helping their own luck right they're they're furthering beyond the okay well i made this game it's you know pretty good success you know we can argue about the minutia of like where does it fall in the level of success but it's enough to be interesting to you know sell a book and maybe the book turns into a podcast maybe it turns into a, a whole web series maybe it turns into a conference for all i know right like building on those things i think is part of the making your own luck piece for sure yep yeah i don't know it's just uh i had a i had a second thought about uh something that we talked about on the past show and uh made me think about that so Alrighty, so, okay, it's that time of night. Let's go around the table and see if anybody has any picks. Aaron, do you have a pick for us? I week? have, uh, yes, a pick oh, that I should great. have had yes. last week. There you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, our uh, fellow Taco member, Brian Gillum, has published a new app for the Apple TV. You heard of that? <laughs> and it's called Draftly. This is an Apple TV client for the website Dribbable. Um, mm-hmm. Just pronounce it Dribble. Uh, we talked about this uh, website last week uh, on the after show, and so if you listen to that show, then you uh, at least know what Dribble is. It's a site for designers to go and uh, to post their own work and to look at other designers' work and uh, rate them and rebound against them, and it's kind of like a social network. And what Brian Gilm has done, and he's a lead developer at TWG in Toronto, big um, development the firm there. Group the working group and he is doing this in his spare time because he's a big fan of dribble the website and wanted to see an apple tv client for it and so he made one um it was the work of a few months and he wanted to you know go through the whole process of building and shipping an app of his own and draftly is the result you can go to getdraftly.com to see it on the web uh, unfortunately, because of the way the Apple TV store works, you cannot link directly to an Apple TV store app page. So you have to go to the Apple TV app store and search for Draftly in order to find it. Um, once you do and you have it installed, uh, you've got a very clean looking TV ML based. I think it's TV ML based. Um, although even as I say that now, I'm looking at it and seeing a couple of custom things here that I'm not sure about anymore. So, uh, okay, let's just leave that alone. <laughs> um, what you do is you have an app where you can browse uh, the latest stuff on Dribble and look through teams, designers, what's popular and what's new um, on the service. And then you can kind of drill down and look at the individual uh, designer's work. And you can uh, see a little uh, description about it, um, some metadata about it, and then you can uh, look at the whole uh, at the thing. You can zoom in on the art and have a look at it full screen. Um, has nice support for animated GIFs, by the way. Um, or is it a GIF? Uh, I'll leave that <laughs> as an exercise for the audience. So nice. um, very, very lovely app. Very simple, um, but but quite effective. Now, um, 
I, I wouldn't be a review if I didn't have a suggestion for improvement. And one of mine uh, that I'm looking at here is I would love to have a search function in this app. Uh, the ability to uh, to go to a search tab and then find a particular um, a particular designer's work rather than just uh, hoping to stumble onto something new uh, in the popular or the new categories uh, would be really great. But uh, other than that, it's a really slick looking app. And congratulations to Brian for shipping. So like the, like the, I did look at the uh, website after we had our conversation last week. Um, to, it, is the app, does the app have the ability to look at, follow specific art, um, artists and that kind of stuff? Like, or, or is it all just, uh, it's just browsing, browsing. Kind of thing? Oh, just browsing, browsing okay. yeah. Yeah, so that's uh, actually something else I thought about too. Would be to, you know to star particular artists. Say, mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. believe that Dribble, the site, has that capability. So it would have to be something you know extra on top of that. Um, but uh, yeah, teams are something that you can look at. Team like a design team, for example, that they can post as a group, um, mm-hmm. like an agency, for example, um, right. as well as individual artists. But being able to star them and and then being able to see their new stuff when it gets posted on the TV would be pretty neat too. So I, I don't remember. We I know we talked about this before in past shows, but um, and maybe Tammy knows the answer to this. But uh, with Apple TV, can you make a standalone app, or does it have to be tied to a, an iOS app somehow? Yeah, yeah. Of course, you can make a standalone. Yeah, it's all oh, okay. standalone. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And but, then Draftly is Draftly is a standalone app. But the only way to find them, as you said, was through the search on the um, Apple Store on the. On the device, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. You can actually, um, it, this is actually a recent thing. You can look at an iTunes store listing for the Apple TV on your Mac. Okay. Um, I think Draftly, yes. Yeah, so, so at the very bottom of the getdraftly.com, you can see download on the App Store, that graphic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and if you click that, that'll take you, if you're on a Mac, okay? And this only works on the Mac, I think. It doesn't even work on iOS. Uh, you, you'll get a web page with an iTunes preview for the app. Um, but, of course, you can't do anything with it here, right? You can't install it. Um, can't, quote, but you, buy you, it. Can, can you purchase, purchase you cannot it? cannot purchase or? it. You can't do anything. You can only look at it. Oh, really? Yeah, so you're you're humped. Now, if you go back to the the uh, getdraftly.com and at the bottom again, right beside that graphic, there's a little heading. And this is the the pain that every Apple TV developer faces. Mm-hmm. There's a heading, downloading Draftly. To download Draftly, simply search for the word Draftly on your Apple TV. Nice. Yeah. Select the app icon and you'll be taken directly to the App Store page where you can then download the app. It's a pain in the ass. I, I wish Apple would do something about that. Well, maybe they will at WWDC. Who knows? One could hope. One could hope. Or we'll have to wait five years for the next iteration. It's possible. Thanks. <laughs> anyway, that's my pick. Cool. Uh, Hamid, do you have several picks for us? <laughs> I don't know that it counts as several, but I have two. Count them two picks. Um, Take that, Greg Heo. <laughs> I think the technical piece for several is four, I think, is where it starts. <laughs> I don't to look up in the dictionary, so it's definitely not several. Uh, but I do have two. And the first one is a blog post from useyourloaf.com. And it is about readable content guides. So I, I had no idea that this was a thing. I somehow missed this. So uh, if you can target iOS 9, um, you know, they've mentioned the layout anchors and uh, layout guides that make auto layout easier, right? You can mm-hmm. do all sorts of wonderful things. Um, this blog post is about readable content guides. So they set up a scenario where, hey, imagine you have uh, text content, like in a UI label and you pin to the margins, you know, the leading margin and the trailing margin of your um, container. 
maybe that looks great. You know, you've got a whole block of text that's pretty readable. This paragraph, you know, in on an iPad Air 2 in portrait mode. And by golly, you put it into landscape mode and you're reading text from here to Zimbabwe. That's what it feels like, right? It's very awkward and, and, and uncomfortable, right? Uh, apparently, there is a follow readable width aspect that you can change in Interface Builder, and there's a programmatic way to to reach this where uh, iOS will be smart enough to say, hey, this is supposed to be readable width, so no matter what the you know auto layout piece is telling me to do, I'm never going to make this text get wider than what would be comfortable for the average human being reading text. So it's a pretty easy to follow along um, blog post that I recommend people read if they are like me and we're unfamiliar with this feature. That is cool. I did not know about this. It's funny. I was just laying out a text box today or text text view today in an app. And, you know, of course, you're using the universal uh, square type uh, layout for a view controller in uh, storyboard and kind of stretching out the, you know, the, the box to fit with full width and then realizing, well, it's going to look really awkward to read. And I didn't realize this was uh, built in there. This is only an iOS 9 feature, you said, Jaime? I believe that's correct. I didn't look at the docs myself, but I'll I'll believe the blog post. Okay. Have to look have to look into that one. And number two? Number two is glot.io. So if folks are familiar with Pastebin, the site where you can do what it says on the tin, you can copy and paste, you know, code samples, let's say, or snippets. Uh, it does syntax highlighting and you can make it available to anybody and everybody in the world or friends and family, what have you, right? Like if I wanted to share like, Hey, how do I do this readable content guides? It's like, Oh, here you go. Here's a snippet, that sort of thing. That's what Pastebin does. Uh, Glot.io takes that idea and says, well, what if you could actually run that stuff and execute it in your browser? And it's really cool. So you can you can go to glot.io, and you can see all sorts of languages that they have uh, capabilities for. So uh, Swift, you know, there, there should be no surprise there. Just like we've seen things coming out of like IBM and all these other bits, uh, Python, Ruby, Go, Erlang, Clojure, C plus plus, C sharp, Haskell, OCaml, Rust. Uh, there's way too many, and it looks like there's more. There are way too many. There's way too many, <laughs> and it looks like there's been some that were added it's since the last time I, I looked at this. So it's it's actually pretty cool. I think uh, go go take a try. You know, run the the Swift one, uh, for example. Just give that a, a swing. You can see like, oh, yeah, it actually will let me type in. It will let me run and see what the the console executable output would be. There's uh, you can click on snippets, and you can go see like, oh. Um, what do people have out there? Like the, uh, let's take a look. Okay. Um, snippets live here. Okay. Um, how about, uh, delete index from array in JavaScript? So live here, I see the code. Uh huh. You straight. Yeah. That seems pretty reasonable. And I see the output and I'm like, Oh yeah, that is really what it will do. And it's nice. It's got line numbers. It's got syntax highlighting. You can go in and change things you want. You can, uh, they've got a fork concept where it's pretty much like I'm making my own version. Really cool uh, collaborative thing. So if you're uh, familiar at all with GitHub and it's gist feature, this is uh, kind of like that, but actually as, as far as I know, I don't think you can run gists on GitHub, uh, no feature, re- feature requests for them. Cause I think I would love that at the very least, uh, glot.io is here to fill that gap for you. This is so slick. And they have an API, right? Yes, they do. Mm-hmm. So they've got an API, and it's all open source. So you could, theoretically, although this would be complex, is take this whole infrastructure and host it on your own servers. Imagine that. So go to Gladio, Gladio, and there's an open source thing there. 
takes you to a GitHub page and shows you the components, the website, which you may not care about, the snippets API, the code runner API, a code runner tool, and then the Docker containers that are used to run those individual environments. That's the really cool part, like being able no to kidding. just do that, especially because I... Yeah, so you guys didn't think about like using this API to make an app that you could run, test your snippets in on your phone? Interesting. Against, against a server running this stuff. Yeah. I, I guess, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. You could do it. Well, you wouldn't even know, need to host your own. You could use the uh, API on this site right. to do that. And absolutely, yeah. Like, as soon as I looked at this with the API, I'm like, hmm, interesting. Hmm. Because, um, you know, I think Gist on uh, GitHub's site, GitHub's Gist service, has long been an underappreciated service because Ada has a full API as well. Um, that I, I use a fair amount, I guess, not a ton, but from time to time, it comes in handy to uh, post code samples there that I can show to people just by sending a link, right? Um, but this goes above and beyond that, because not only is it open source, but it's very well implemented, and it allows you to run the code samples. Cool. Yeah. So it's kind of exciting. Okay, so, Tammy, do you have a pick for us? I do have a pick. All right. Yes, my- I had a, an opportunity to work on an article for Creative Block for the basically the new illustration tools for April. And one of the tools I came across was Concepts, which is not new, right? But it has been recently updated, so I included it in the article. But I was using it, and I'm I'm really enjoying it. So it's basically a sketching and design and CAD, believe it or not, for architecture and illustration. And it works on the iPhone and the iPad and even the iPad Pro with the Apple Pencil. So I'm just digging it. I, I love it. And who makes that? Top Hatch is who makes it. Let's check that out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can even put um, text on your drawings, which is kind of neat. Digging it. I'm really digging it. Cool. That does look pretty comprehensive. Yeah, the, the interface feels... Um, a little overwhelming at first when you get into it but it really you you learn to get around it and get around it kind of in a nice way that yeah, looks good yeah hmm. interesting and you can you can download it for free right i mean there you can in-app purchases you can do to get more features but you can totally use it out of the box free on your ipad on your iphone I highly recommend you check it out. Any artists that are listening or driving in their cars, check it out. <laughs> Touche, Tammy. Aha. <laughs> <laughs> I said that on Tammy's show about an hour ago. <laughs> I owed you that, man. <laughs> Supports Apple sure. Pencil here, so that's uh, interesting. Um, yeah. Hmm. We talked about a, an app, um, if you listen to it, was it called Bez, uh, which is an illustrator type app for drawing Bezier drawings. Uh, Aaron, it was Aaron's pick two weeks ago, and I used it to do some sketching, but uh, you should check that one out too, Tammy. What is it called? Bez, B-E-Z, Bez, or okay. sorry, B-E-Z. Did I'll you say Z? Yeah, uh, yeah you got to translate that to American for the B-E-Z. other people. <laughs> I did. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I know. When's that, when's that wall going up? <laughs> Not right. soon enough. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, Tim, what are your picks, man? You okay, so you might think that my pick was actually put on the on the notes by Greg Hio, but no, in fact, it is actually a talk done by Greg Hio, which has surfaced on the RayWinnerLick.com website today. And it was a talk that he gave at RW DevCon, and 
it kind of builds on a couple of th- on the talk that he did in 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 Beijing as well. Uh, I think he sort of said that was sort of his dress rehearsal for this uh, this talk at RW DevCon, and basically it's programming in a Swift style. And I'd like to think he was inspired by Aaron's question about idiomatic Swift back in the day. Um, but it's a very good talk, and it's actually available to, for anybody to look at. Um, this week, uh, I think it's going to be up for it's going to be a free video on the on the, the site for a while, I believe. Um, and it's part of uh, I think what they're calling it. Um, what do they call that, Tammy? The vault or something? Yeah, it's the vault. Yeah. So the, so what they did for our WDevCon is they produced it. They didn't just okay. you know each individual person do a talk. And actually, T- Tammy did a talk too. Um, but they produced a book to go along with the conference. So basically, a PDF of like some you know hundreds of pages long. I forget how long it is. But so each each uh, it's sort of a demo type um, conference where they they walk you through code, and then there's a sort of uh, some labs where you can do code on your own with with them there to help you. Um, so Greg's talk was uh, on learning to sort of think in Swift style. So he starts off with uh, an Objective C code sample and starts to break it down and transform it into how you would look at this code in Objective C and how it would translate into Swift. And then he takes it one step further and says, okay, now this is how you would sort of think in Swift style and program the same kind of code. Um, and so he's been building on these very interesting um, talk style that he's been doing over the last couple of years. We're sorry that we lost him to Facebook in that sense because those, these talks are great. Hopefully Facebook will allow him out of their little pen to uh, do more talks in the future. But uh, if you're a fan of our show, or you're a fan of Greg Heo, I definitely recommend that you check out programming in a Swift style. My second pick is um, basically a mind-blowing talk that I didn't actually attend live at the, during the conference. I wish I had. I think it was at the same time as Greg's talk, to be honest with you. Um, but it was by a gentleman there named Derek Slander, who is an iOS developer at GoDaddy. Um, but he did a talk on advanced debugging, advanced LLDB debugging, um, which was just off the hook. Okay, so I mean, the to the vault is a ninety nine dollar purchase, and I literally think that this talk alone is worth twice that. If you're an iOS developer out there, and you want to find out what's going on inside your apps, um, it's awesome. I actually used some of his uh, um, techniques today at work. We had we were working with a, a third party SDK, and we were had to set a value that would then get sent by the SDK off to. You know the the uh, analytic people that would uh, gather up that information, and using the LLDB debugger and using regex commands and strings on the debugger. I'm, des- I'm describing this incorrectly, but I was able to go through, list out all of the methods, or list all the places where this method was called in the application. Find the memory address where that uh, particular string was be- was res- or that class was writing to, taking that memory address and again using another command in the debugger and actually printing out the string that was stored in the heap that I couldn't access any other way. So if you really want to get the can opener out on your apps, it's an awesome thing. One of the things that he did during the talk and and in this video, um, you know, we hope that it'll be available for people just all alone. But one of the things he did in this app was he showed how to take an app like an existing app like Mobile Safari, which is also known as Safari on your phone. Uh, in the simulator, and he was able to find out where all the instances of set text are called in the app, 
find individual ones, and then using a symbolic breakpoint in Xcode, change the text that appears whenever set text is called. So in this case, he put like mu'a in there. And so, and then you literally, so he, he opens up the, um, the Safari browser, which opens to a, like a, um, a collection view where you see the Apple icon and you see the, you know, the favorites view. You guys familiar with that? Yep. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you push the view up off the screen and, and let it drop back down again, well, it's a collection view, so it has to redraw, right? That's sort of the rules of collection views when they go off the screen. And instant, like the, the, na- the label Apple changed to ah and the, the Bing one did the same thing. Um, and it was just really cool. And any, and then he started browsing around in Safari, and anywhere that set text was called would replace it with the string that he told it to. So it's kind of a really cool way of learning how to use a debugger to um, sort of get take control or find out what's going on in your apps and find things in memory that that uh, you know without you know debugging tools uh, you could use, right? So. Interesting, and that's you can set breakpoints in the uh, console. In fact, even with the um, with the Safari example, he actually ran that out of the terminal on the Mac, as opposed to using even doing it in Xcode. He basically called you know attached to the process uh, mobile Safari, and then went in and, and did it. It's really really cool uh, cool examples of what you can do. Yeah. So this these two videos are not publicly available the greg keo one is publicly available it went up today on ray on com, and the other one is part of the um the whole package the whole package gives you um the the book which is all the all of the talks that were done including tammy's talk and then um it also gives you uh, access to the code examples that uh, we had at the at the conference so if you weren't able to attend the conference basically you know it's basically a cheap way of getting to to go there for like a tenth of the price or even less, right? So, what was your talk on, Tammy? Can you talk about that for a minute? It was the um, native app development on the Apple TV, TVOS. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, well, there you lots go. Lots of fun. I yeah, even so... took my shoes off. It was scary. <laughs> Seemed to be a tradition <laughs> amongst some of the people in that, in that lecture hall. But uh, yeah, it was a really good talk. So a really good. Uh, it's a great. It's a great conference if if you can go. But if you, even if you couldn't, it was sold out, of course. So you probably couldn't go if you wanted to. Um, but yeah, it's just a great way of, of uh, getting getting access to the content. And I think they'll probably put up some some of the videos up for free over time. Cool. Highly recommend it. Cool. And, and uh, a little bit of fu that I want to interject here because it uh, it took me a. It took me an amount of time to figure this out uh, after I listened to last week's, or maybe the week before his episode again. I didn't realize that the term Wendy's referred to the <laughs> Ray Winderlich team. You, you tossed it out a couple times. I was like, what? Wow, I'm totally missing something. What's this, what's this Apple development thing, them. Wendy's? I, like, oh, it's their own nickname. Okay, cool. Thank you. So yeah, for all of you yeah, yeah. listeners out there, if you were just as confused as I was, I've cracked the code. Uh, I was, I was now trying to we avoid. have to kill him. I was trying to avoid <laughs> unnecessary dings, if you know what I mean, right? <laughs> yeah, but definitely the the LLD bug, like the bug, debugging thing is just basically like, yeah, I, I, you know, Mark is a very Mark. Mark probably knows half of this stuff anyway, but he's one of the guys who taught me about debugging using breakpoints and and you know, trying to figure stuff out. And and the other a uh, couple of weeks ago, I was trying to figure out some view controller stuff that I, you really can't. I had to test it on a device. And I can't test it on the device, so I had to use some. I had to use breakpoints and have it play noises as it ran because I couldn't stop it 
you know what I mean? Like I had to, it was a timing issue. And if I put a breakpoint in, it kind of stops the app. Um, but if I put an audio breakpoint in, I can I could then tell when it's being hit, and it would just continue execution, kind of thing, right? So, lots of interesting stuff. Yep, sounds good. Butter up, Tim. Alrighty then. So, Aaron, if people want to find you on the interwebs, where would they look? Go to the Twitter machine at Aaron Vay. There you go. And uh, how many people want to find you on the interwebs? Where would they look? Also on Twitter as at Dev with the Hair. And Tammy? Over at Twitter, Paradox927. There you go. And, of course, my name is Tim Mitra, so I would be T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine. And, of course, you can ping us on the website. And what else can you do? Uh, yeah. you can Listen to the after show thing, and you can get all that information. That's true. We have a little outro that'll uh, lay it down for you. But come on by. Leave us some comments. We love comments. We love feedback. Don't forget to use uh, the hashtag ask mtjc on twitter uh, i don't oh, think we have that right. on the outro uh, actually that's true you know we we should probably pick up some of those threads from uh, past uh, a couple of last couple of weeks we've had a few people use that hashtag i am totally stealing that from you guys for roundabout <sighs> i love that idea. yeah so yeah if you're listening to roundabout put ask mtjc with your comments <laughs> <laughs> all righty folks we'll see you next week all right Thanks good night good night bye Eddie. Oh, good night. <laughs> That's always oh, the last one to the party. Hey, if you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There, you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items that we talk about on the show, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. Hey, if you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website. And if you could also write a review on iTunes, that would be amazing. And if you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press the recommend button now. I'll wait. It really helps others find out about the show. You can also follow us on Twitter. The podcast Twitter account is at MTJC underscore podcast. And if you'd like to support us, you can pledge any amount on patreon.com slash MTJC. Thank you so much for listening. Love you guys. This is your third podcast today, isn't it, Tammy? It's my third podcast today. I'm like the. I feel like Greg Hio. Yeah, you're becoming the. I'm not going to say the word, but you're becoming that that podcast person, <laughs> which we always call Greg when when we're talking about. Him. I heard a rumor: if you say Greg Hio three times in a row, he'll appear. So be careful. I think really? we're on two. He did that last week to us, actually. <laughs> yeah. See just popped into our conversation did you listen to our last show no i started to and then i you know 15 other things happened but it is it is still on my list of things to do well there's a bit there's a special surprise if you listen to the end of that show so oh, see now i have to and i there's like five other things i have to do tonight and two of them are from things i had to do last night so i'm already behind yeah yeah so aaron we just interviewed two women called the agile bettys interesting yeah, and they're, they're both Agile coaches, and they do a podcast of their own called Agile Betty's. And so they were telling us all about, you know, breaking things down and doing small doing small pieces and creating small stories. And so Tammy needs to uh, drink from that well. Yeah. I, Are their names uh, Betty? No, they're not. And you know what? 
if I was a good podcast host, which clearly I'm not, I would have asked them how they came up with the name Agile Betty's. But I was, I was just stuck on the whole doing little things a bit at a time, and I was like, "What? No, dude, take it all on at once and miserably fail at everything." <laughs> <laughs> Didn't work. Tammy would give us a new version of her indie dev stock or indie dev stock commercial, which she totally got the draw going in it. Uh, you know, that's oh really? True. That makes it more sound like yeah. it's more Tennessee, Come on, right? Damn Nashville, yeah. I don't even hear it because when I sent it over to Angela to to listen to, she said the same like, thing. Yeah, she says you sound like you lived half your life in Tennessee. Really? <laughs> well, Angela sounds like she lives in Tennessee for sure. Right, and then then you said it, and I'm like, but no. Y'all hearing things, and she said, "Yeah, we all hear y'all, things." Y'all, yeah, yeah, y'all. But uh, and he was also saying that there's an argument about whether people call things gravy or sauce. Oh well, that is huge. Now, part of my family is Italian. Right. The other part of my family is Irish. Right. Which makes for interesting dinners, incidentally. <laughs> but half of the family calls gravy the brown stuff, right? The stuff you put on yeah. turkey. Yeah. The other half of the family calls gravy the red stuff that you put on your spaghetti. Oh, I get it. Okay, right. Huh. Yeah. Now, the Italian side calls that red stuff sauce. And it depends, again, who you talk to in in that side of the family, because it's either sauce or sauce, right? (laughs) (laughs) Still pretty close, though. I can still hear the origin of that word as you anglicize it. Yeah. And... uh, (laughs) And then there's the whole Jersey thing, right? You know, like it, it actually, when I say daughter, sometimes the Jersey in me actually really comes out and I'd be like, daughter, you know? <laughs> it, but it's so funny, like how many different types of, it, how how differently a word can sound from, from one person to the next. And yet mm-hmm. we all kind of know what we're saying. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, those two, those two Agile Bettys we just spoke to, did you not hear all the Wisconsin in their voices? No, see, I don't really hear accents too much. Yeah, see, I, I noticed it because, you know, Aaron Douglas, our buddy from um, uh, Rayburn Licht as well, uh, Astrobodies on Twitter, he was telling me that how, and he was sort of demonstrating to me how, it, in an exaggerated way, how the the Wisconsin sounds, because uh, I think he's in Madison maybe, right? Um, but yeah, no, I really noticed it yes, this, this evening when we were talking to them and... and uh, I could hear, you know, A's and E's coming out slightly different from them. See, I only notice little things, and probably not even the little things, like the little things, but the people, the the things that people always mention, right? So, like the Canadians, they always say A and sorry. (laughs) You know, the the people from Jersey will always say things like daughter, and then there's the whole sauce and the gravy, right? And then there's people in the South, we say y'all and things (laughs) like that. So, I mean, those are the things that I hear, but the typical normal conversations between people i just don't hear the different accents to me everyone sounds the same well see i would never know jaime for instance i would never know that you're from texas like how old were you you were you were an adult when you left texas uh, right yeah what 22 23 when i left texas yeah because you don't see to me i would think a texan has that sort of you know oil oil country drawl right kind of thing so texas is enormous don't forget that right so that (laughs) that lyndon b johnson uh george w bush sound comes from the eastern and central parts of uh, texas oh okay i'm from the west so we're closer to um definitely we're in the southwest so 
like New Mexico, Arizona kind of uh, speech yeah. patterns. Yeah, you're I would El Paso, love to right? talk to a linguist one day mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and just learn about language and where it came from and where it might be going. And gosh, there was a fish, so it's, it, it would be so incredible. Well, there was a show on on. Um, I don't know if it was PBS or TVO. TVO is our public broadcaster up here. Um, to, you know, television Ontario kind of thing. That was about the English language. And I think it was George Plimpton was the... Do you know who he is? He's American, right? George Plimpton? He was a... I think he was a linguist, right? And he did this show on the English language. And he started out with a couple of farmers in Wales leaning up against a fence talking to each other about their sheep. And it was like unintelligible it could have been klingon for all it was it was english right <laughs> and he talked about and he went and it was it was like a couple of nights long it wasn't like one show and it went all around different parts of the world at how people talked and it's funny because when they got to the welling canal which is i grew up uh, in st Catharines, ontario and when they got to the welling canal they're talking about how okay now here's the guys that guide the boats through the welling canal like the big steamships and stuff like that right um and this is how they talk, and I'm listening to these people talk, and I'm like, I don't hear anything, right? Because that's the accent I grew up with, right? Um, but then they went around to, and then they talked about in China and Japan, where now they're starting to take the English language and they're making their own words. So, like, for instance, they would say hambagi for hamburger, right? And that was one thing that kind of stuck out with my, in my mind. It was sometime in the... I want to say uh, late 80s. It was on TV. I'll have to see if I can dig it up. It was really cool. Like, if you're interested in that kind of thing, Tammy, because it's like it was all over the place in terms of how people talked, right? And oh, we're all I speaking, totally all... send it to me because, like I said, I that stuff fascinates me. Human behavior, as much as I'm afraid of people, human behavior <laughs> fascinates me. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of which, have you seen there's a, a show on... Um, Oh, it's an American show called Brain Games. Oh, National Geographic TV. Did you get that down there? Or do you, or do you, you I don't have cable? T- no, I don't have TV. Okay, they have this series called Brain Games, which is really kind of cool. So they might be on, I don't know if they'd be on the YouTube or, or some other way you can get them. But uh, so, you, so how are you watching Game of Thrones? iTunes. We, is it on iTunes, like season six? No, no. Oh, well, okay. I don't actually that I can't say I don't know because I haven't picked up the new season. I'm like eight episodes behind on the old oh, season. Are you? Oh, okay. So I don't even know if the new one's on iTunes, but that's where we were watching it. That's where we watched The Walking Dead. Um, right. We right. also do have the Netflix and listen, I sound like an old person. We've got the Netflix and the Hulu <laughs> <laughs> and the Facebook and the Twitter. And the Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gosh, my kids are right. I am cringy. <laughs> so thanks for having me on the show again. It's a lo- oh, it's always fun when I'm on this show. I, I have so much fun. Do you? Okay. I don't feel like I contribute a whole lot, but I have fun. Well, yeah, it's good to have your perspective. You have, you know, obviously different perspective from a couple of different angles, right? Because we don't have anybody south of us, like directly south. I mean, Jaime's way over there, and and Mark is way over there as well, right? So. Although Mark is technically from Boston, you know. True, but but he but he's migrated, right? Just like Greg. So the West Coast has yeah. just as many hosts as the East Coast. Cool. All right. Good deal. Again, what's the great have you on our show? Uh, sounds like Tim was on yours. So next episode, uh, I'll hear <laughs> the uh, the dulcet tones of uh, Mr. Mitra. Yes. Well, not the next one because um, I'm I'm behind on my post production. I've got one coming out tomorrow with Joe who's the guest, and then Tim will be on next week's 
which mm-hmm. I'm excited about because he's always fun to have.